Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Janko Tipsarevich, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, we have a very special interview for you here on the Tennis Podcast today with Janko Tipsarevich, somebody I've wanted to speak to for a long time. He gave us a lot of time for this interview. I think it's absolutely riveting, fascinating to hear from him, what he's gone through, what his opinions are on so many aspects of the tennis world and colleagues such as Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray and lots of the political elements of the, the circuit and also what he's been through personally. You may have noticed that there is an explicit tag on this particular edition of the show. That's very unusual for the tennis podcast, but there is some some strong language in this in this particular interview. We've left it uncut. I'm warning you about it now just in case it's not something you want to hear. I think it's still worth listening to. I think he's fascinating. If you do enjoy the show, do let people know, let your friends know, tweet the links so that other people can listen to it too. Here is Yanko Tipsarevich. Well, Yanko, welcome to the Tennis Podcast. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'm actually excited, very excited. That's really nice of you. I mean, you, you won't remember this, Yanko, I suspect, but you were actually a guest Try on me. on you were a guest on this show 7 years ago in what was actually only episode 7 of the Tennis Podcast, and this is episode 520. So a lot has happened in the last seven years. Uh, you're right. I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, congrats on on having a, a very, very successful podcast for the last seven years. I listen to you guys very, very often. Wow. Thank you. Uh, you Well, when you were on with us, uh, we were only just working out how to make the microphones work and things like that. You were, <laughs> you were number eight in the world. You'd oh won... God. You'd won 57 matches that year. You'd qualified for the O2 in London. I think we spoke to you at the Queen's Club at the time. My, my co-host, Catherine Whitaker was the one to speak to you. And here you are now. You're nearly 35. I think you turned 35 in June. Um, you're, exactly. You're still a tennis player. You, just before we came on air, you were, you were telling me about your win yesterday against Tennis Sangren in Houston. And... I mean, just being back on the circuit at all feels like an achievement, given what I've been reading about what has happened to you. For, for people that don't know what has happened to you over the last six years, 
bring us up to date. Uh, I'll try not to bore you with too many details because it's been a, a lot of hospitals, a lot of doctors, a lot of surgeries. But uh, to try and keep it brief, in the last five years, I've undergone seven different uh, surgeries on my body, all of them being on my legs. Uh, the first one, I, I won't get the dates right. There's no chance. <laughs> the first one happened, um, uh, two, I had a double surgery on my left plantar fascia, which is a fancy name for the sole of your foot. <laughs> I had a um, benign tumor, which once it was removed for the first time, it uh, grew back. So half a year after, I had to do another one and remove 80 to 85% of my left foot sole. Uh, I was doing a lot of uh, rehab, wearing uh, uh, orthotics, special orthotics to try and not to compensate. But unfortunately, a year and a half after, I, I came back actually to number 70. And, uh, but a year and a half after I started having serious pain on my right knee due to compensation. And uh, I had to undergo a double right knee surgery in the span of year, year and a half, uh, on my right knee patella, which kind of gave up on me. Um, after that, everything was fine. I came back in actually six, seven months from zero to top 50. And then I started feeling both of my hamstrings. I, to finish the story, the last surgery was like two and a half years ago. Uh, both of my, of my hamstrings, right and left, with another redoing of the surgery on the right hamstring. So that's in total seven surgeries in the last five years. I started training again in December started playing the season maybe a little bit too early with the Australian Open, but I wanted to start the 2019 season. And uh, uh, my body feels okay, aches and pains here and there. But uh, you're right. Every single time I step on the court, uh, if I win a match, it's like I appreciate the win way, way more now in these older tennis years than I was when I was younger. <laughs> Yeah, I can I can imagine. I mean, aside from all the physical issues that you were dealing with during that period, I mean, the, the, I saw a lot of the, the pictures that you posted of yourself in those hospitals, and it was it's kind of heartbreaking to see what what you were struggling against to try to become a tennis player again. What 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 kept you going? Why did you decide to do this? You you, you know you've you've earned good money in your career. You've You've been a top 10 player. You've achieved so much. What? Why are you doing this? I believe it's two things. Uh, number one and the main thing, uh, I was educated like that. I was educated from my parents and my first coach and even my current coach that it's... Uh, I'm going to paraphrase it now that it's normal to work maybe this sounds really really bad and and, and, and and stupid to a degree but it's normal to give everything you have it's normal to try it's normal to do absolutely everything you can to try and do what you love 
uh, first of all, I mean, first of all, if I wouldn't love tennis, I wouldn't do it. I have earned enough resources over the course of my career that both me and my family can have a, a very, very happy, happy life. Uh, but um, the main part is I love tennis. I feel like I retired at the age of 29 because since then this nightmare has begun with me constantly starting, going, starting, going. And number three, it's kind of normal for me to have the attitude of which I'm preaching about for the last uh, few years of keep digging and keep trying and keep coming back. As the famous quote in uh, Rocky Balboa, it said, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how many times you can get hit and get up. And eventually like this, you become a winner. Not in tennis necessarily, but in life. We're going to get on to talk a little bit more about your your phrase, keep digging, uh, a little later. Because one of the things I know you, you want to talk about is is uh, an initiative you're, you're launching, a mastermind, uh, yeah. where you give people a chance to, to learn about the struggles and the things you've experienced and learned over the course of your career to help them in their careers we'll, we'll talk about that in a little while but one of the things that when I was reading on on the website to do with that initiative I read that you you said in 2018 that your mental health deteriorated and I wondered if you could explain to me what you meant by that because there's there's a lot of discussion about how mental health relates to to the on court and and in football on the on the field and and in in life in business and in, in the boardroom and and I just wonder how how it related to your mental health what what you were enduring physically and during that time 2018 was the first time that I actually in my career that uh, I would not say I was thinking about giving up but it's the first time that I was starting to feel the signs and the symptoms of mental fatigue because it's been year number five of digging, of trying to come back. And um, I feel there was always something which is not in my control to to hold me back. Now, uh, believe it or not, David, for the mind, it's very easier that if things don't go your way, but you're not vain, you're not arrogant to, to accept that it's actually your fault. But in this, and if you accept that it's your fault, you can learn from it, learn from your mistakes, change something, and keep digging and keep trying again. The reason for my mental fatigue was because things which were holding me back were absolutely not in my control. There was nothing that I could do to feel less pain. I was just feeling that my body was giving up on me and uh, I was unable to do what I'm trying so hard for four or five years to do. Uh, this affected me maybe greatly is a two of a stretch, but it honestly did. The main point is also that it affected my family because uh, Tennis is such a huge part of my life. I devoted close to 30 years to tennis because I started playing at the age of six. 
And if you're doing everything you can and you cannot do what you love, this is affecting your personal life. Therefore, it's affecting your family. So I'm extremely grateful that uh, my family members, especially my wife, was, uh, you know, being full of understanding for these months and months of, um, I don't want to say deep depression, but... If there's such thing as a medium depression, I don't want to undermine depression because it's a serious medical condition. But, How would you uh, describe it, though, Yanko? Did you feel like you you didn't want to I do certain things? I, I no, I I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was my brain, my body was kind of on on an autopilot. You know, when the plane is flying, so the the pilot just presses the autopilot button and it follows the the path. But uh, I was, uh, I wouldn't even say that I was in a bad mood. I was just flat. Because when I feel disappointed or let's say depressed, I wasn't, you know, feeling the joy of, of, of life, of, of, of my daughter, of my wife. I was just feeling, feeling very sad, you know, and sadness with me, it doesn't work in terms of rage or disappointment or whatever. It was more like I was just completely flat, which is completely opposite of my personality. The other thing which may help is, uh, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later, is the project of the academy which we're having in Belgrade, which uh, I devoted a lot of time to. So when w- once my mind was thinking about other work-related things, I was being able to, to kind of forget that I'm injured, that I'm unable to do this and that. But as soon as the work finished, again, I was coming back to this flat and, you know, non-speaking Yanko. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can relate to it. I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this podcast that can relate to, to what you described there because I think people are increasingly understanding mental health. And, and actually hearing you talk about about this situation, we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years analyzing and speaking to and trying to understand what Andy Murray has been going through because he's obviously had some some health issues and and he's 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 now had a, a hip surgery and and I saw him 6 weeks ago and he suddenly seems like the world had lifted from his shoulders because he wasn't in pain anymore i i imagine you can relate to how how he's been feeling uh I just want to say something because it happens very often that I say stuff to my close friends and then later on this happens. And then I, I kind of say, I told you so, but I say it only to a few people. Andy Murray will be back stronger than ever. Man, this is the first place where your listeners can hear it. And uh, he will win another slam. I'm not sure if he will be back to world number one, but he will be back stronger than ever. I am 100% sure of it. Um, in terms of... Um, How can you be so sure? I am sure. How? Same like I was sure when um, I was speaking with Novak after his elbow surgery. And, okay, for, for Novak was a little bit easier because I was around him. And if I see his behavior around him, I, I'm not a huge religious guy. But I believe that 
the universe recognizes if you really want something. Andy Murray, in my opinion, is completely obsessed about tennis, which is an unbelievable gift and a great thing. So if he is completely obsessed about tennis and wants something really bad, there is no way that this will not happen. Same like I said to Novak, beginning of last year, after the surgery, once I saw how he's behaving and how he's going about things, I said, this time next year, you will be number one. And he was laughing because he was, I think, 20 at the time. Um, so for Andy Murray, listen, you can never be sure. This is just my strong, strong hunch and strong, strong feeling. Time will tell. Uh, the, ten, the tennis life in general, if you're a true tennis player, it's not hard being a tennis player by soul, by nature. So when you're deprived of doing what you love the most and when it's nothing you can do about it, you know, I can really relate to Andy and, you know, difficulties and issues that uh, probably him and his family were having outside of the court in the, in the period of surgeries, trying to come back, feeling pain every single day. Because trust me, I know how it feels. Yeah, yeah, you, you you do probably more than more than most people, I would imagine. What do you what do you hope to still achieve in your career, Yanko? Obviously, we have the unknown of your your health for the future. Let's hope it's it's good health from here on. But what do you hope and believe you can still do? Uh, I'm a big believer in setting up goals. Um, because if you don't have a goal, no matter how high or how low the goal is, I feel you're not really doing anything to progress. Um, if you set up goals, potentially higher goals, this means that you're brave enough to fail. And if you're brave enough to fail, you're brave enough to learn and accept where you are in, let's say, on the tennis court and generally in life. Having that being said, it's very difficult for me to set up a realistic goal because I don't know how my body will feel. This maybe sounds uh, pretentious, but if I am 100% healthy and I have no pain, I believe that I can be back in the top 50, which will not change my life. It, it, nothing will change if I am in the top 50 for the next year or two or whatever. But it would mean a lot to me to prove to myself and to prove to the world that with the willpower and the keep digging attitude and mentality, after seven surgeries or whatever, this is something which is doable. It is really doable. Same like I told you about Novak, same like I'm telling you about Andy. If you really want it. It's, it's always about how much do you want it and how much do you really want it. And... Uh, as I said, this will not change my life, the way I, I, I go about things or whatever, because at the end of our tennis careers, we are left with two things. Uh, we are left with the bad and the good memories that we had over the span of 12, 15, 16, 17 years that we had on the ATP tour. And we have our bank account. <laughs> these, are the two things, these are the two things that you're left with once you start, stop playing tennis. So this is something which I'm hoping to do mainly for myself to prove to myself that this is doable and hopefully to 
show a few people, not to prove them wrong or anything. I, I don't believe in this, you know, way of mot- like rage motivation, but to show to people the way that it is actually doable if you really, really want it. Mm. And in terms of you as a tennis player now, you've had a couple of matches since you came back and you played at the Australian Open, as you mentioned. You you won this match against Tennis Sangren. Aside from the kind of aches and pains of, of, well, being older for a start and obviously having had five years away from the circuit, how does Janko Tipsarevich, the player now, compare to when you were eight in the world? Are you able to compare and contrast the two? Believe it or not, I'm enjoying myself on the court way more now. Because um, aside from the pressure when you are top 10, you are the favorite against most. And having to deal with that feeling is, if you're a good player, you learn how to deal with it and you learn how to impose your will on the tennis court on your opponent. You see it so many times with Roger and Novak and Rafa and all these other champions. But uh, at that point, I always, because I was younger, pain-free, and way more fit, I had a plan B. I had a B B plan of grinding, defending, running, and maybe doing some things which I wasn't really feeling like doing, but I had to do in order to win and be successful. Now, I feel because I'm older, and because I am still not 100% healthy because of my age, I don't have a plan B. So knowing that my plan A is staying close to the line and playing the aggressive tennis, which I enjoy so much. Um, I learned a bit from Roger, not a bit, a lot. You can see that one of the reasons why he's tremendously successful now is that he doesn't have a plan B. You see tactic-wise, and this is a tennis podcast, so I imagine that a lot of your listeners are very invested into tennis history and tennis matches. You can really see why he was so successful in his later years against Nadal rather than before. Because tactically before, once he starts playing aggressive and he starts missing for a game or two or three, he tends to go back one meter, one and a half meters, and then Rafa starts taking over. Now, knowing his age, he's 37, right? Correct, knowing, yeah. that the, knowing that there's no plan B, he's constantly playing this aggressive tennis, and I believe enjoying the time on the court more than ever before. And I feel similarly to that. That's really fascinating. Really fascinating. Well, you may not have a plan B on the court anymore, but you certainly seem to have a plan B off the court. We'll talk about, I want to talk to you a little bit later about Novak some more and and one or two other issues, but your plan B, we've alluded to it. Um, I was looking at the website succeedwithyanko.com. Tell us us what that is. Succeed with Yanko, I don't want people to get the wrong idea that this sounds like extremely pretentious because it's not. There's thousands and thousands more successful people than than I will ever be or I am. 
but it's more about the mindset. The, 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 this is why it's called the mastermind class. Uh, I'm a big believer that you haven't teached or preached for that matter until you have learned. And one of the reasons why I feel that uh, I learned is because I had a very, very turbulent career, meaning that uh, I was the world number one under 14, 16, and 18 every single year as a year younger. Then I was a, I was a tremendous world number one junior. Then I was a disappointment as a senior expecting to make this huge push as a next-gen star to the ATP Tour, which actually never happened. Then I was a decent senior, broke through to the top 100, then to the top 50, then again a huge disappointment, dropping out of top 100, then getting into top 10, and then after that, getting injured and trying to come back for the last uh, five years. So I feel that my career was very turbulent and I learned not only from my successes, but I learned a tremendous amount from my failures in life. From the things that I sit now here talking to you, David, and wishing that there's a time machine that I could go back and change these things. But the only thing that I can do, hopefully through Mastermind and our academy in Belgrade, is to try and talk to people and, and teach people about the not only successes, but the failures that, uh, and the mistakes that I made, wishing that I did few of the things differently. And I think this is very important in, in teaching and in preaching. I believe it's very hard to, to, for somebody to teach who was as, as stupid as this sounds, um, that had an incredibly successful career in anything. Because people who were incredibly successful, yes, they dealt with a little bit of adversity and, you know, things didn't go their way, but uh, for the most part, uh, a lot of these athletes, they didn't really feel the ups and downs of, an, of, an, of a normal person, of, of a career. So this is why I am really, really co convinced and, and, and strongly, strongly, strongly convinced that I have a tremendously powerful message to, to send to, to all of our listeners which subscribe. What would you do differently? The first thing that I would do differently is change the way that I was looking at tennis as a way of life, not as a sport. Don't get me wrong. I had a, I still have, I'm still playing. I didn't retire just yet, but uh, I still had a good career in terms of being in the top 100 for, I don't know, I don't know how many years, being in the top 50 for seven years or eight years, being in the top 10 for two years. But uh, I learned over the past that tennis is not a sport. Tennis is a way of life. You need to live, eat, and breathe tennis every single day in order really to utilize the keep digging factor. 
you need to help yourself dig with the right tools by living the tennis way of life. And I wasn't doing that, especially in my younger years. I was uh, always a hard worker. I was always showing up to work 8 a.m., practicing four, five, six hours basically every day. So I always had that thing going for me that I was never lazy. I was never skipping practice or stuff or stuff like that. But I wasn't living tennis in a way that a hardcore professional should. The second thing that I would change, I was a very, very big coward because I was afraid to fail. I was always trapped by my inner ego relating to the first issue in not wanting to give up bits and parts of my life in order to see how good am I actually. This is very tricky, especially I had, first of all, nobody to show me the, the way. But this is very tricky for a young, successful mind. Because when you're young and you're 18 and 19 and 20 and you're on top of the world, you think you know a lot, which means that your ego gets the best of you, which means that you're afraid to fail. And if you're afraid to fail, you're afraid to learn. And if you're not learning, you're not progressing. You see it constantly with even the best players, how they are evolving and progressing year after year. These are just some small, actually major things in my career and my life that I definitely would change. Hearing you say all of this, the, the person that, that springs to my mind in the current day is Nick Kyrgios somebody incredibly talented, somebody who we all talk about, somebody who I suspect has some mental health issues. He's he's referenced them recently, the dark places he was in last year. If if you were to have him on your course, what would you what would you do with him? Um Nick for most people, and I can tell, I don't know Nick that well. We know uh, we know each other from the locker room. We haven't spent a lot of time together. But um, even though to some of the people outside he seems very arrogant, he's actually a tremendously nice guy. And I hear this from from players around, even from. Uh, a very, very close friend of mine, Rainer Schuttler, who spent like a month with him in uh, in uh, in uh, this league in India, which was played. So he is a tremendously nice guy and a good soul. But he is... Uh, you you. The first thing when you say about... When you think about Nick, Nick Kyrgios as a fan, maybe you think, okay, he's incredibly talented. But the other part is... Well, it's a shame. Am I right, David? When you yeah. think about Nick's, Nick Kyrgios, the sentence which would kind of like as a cloud go through your mind is, well, it's a shame. But uh, I think talking to Nick Kyrgios or coaching Nick Kyrgios has nothing to do with his forehand or backhand or whatever. It has to do with um, what does he really want in life? If he really wants, listen, giving up a lot because your tennis career is short, but your life is also very short. 
the mindset that some of these guys have, I want to enjoy life to the fullest. And even if I don't reach my full potential, I'm okay with that. Maybe Nick is okay with that because giving up a lot of the things outside, practicing four, five, six hours every day, going to bed early, you know, being a hardcore professional, it's not easy. We heard so many stories from all the greats, Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan or whatever, Tiger Woods or Michael Schumacher of all the great athletes. Um, maybe Nick doesn't really want that. And I would never push him to, to, to do it if he doesn't really want it. I would potentially try to open him up and see what does he really want in life. Because in a lot of his interviews, I feel that he's tired of, of these journalists asking all these questions saying, um, yeah, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to become more serious? When are you going to start caring about? I think just in, in, in this phase, you need to see what does Nick really want. And if this is just playing a few weeks insane tennis on tour, being around 20, 30, 40, then we need to accept that. We really do. Otherwise, I think you're just going to annoy him with, oh, come on, Nick, you need to practice more, you need to work more. <laughs> I don't think this will lead to anything. Mm. Actually, one of the lines on, on your website is, this course is not for you if you don't want to learn. It's You have to be open-minded to it. So, In order to, in order to change... You need to want to change. Exactly what I referenced, what I referenced with Nick. Mm. If you want to change, changes are possible. But if you don't want to change, then the keep digging part doesn't apply to you. The keep digging part applies when you want to change, but you deal with adversity during your change. If you are an alcoholic... And if you want to stop drinking, you need to want to change. But the before you feel better, you generally need to feel worse. If you're a junkie and taking drugs, if you want to stop taking drugs, you need to want to change. And then before you feel better, you need to feel worse. And the keep digging attitude kind of helps you to deal with these adversities, but it will not help you if you don't want to exactly, as you said, David, if you don't want to learn or if you don't want to change. One, uh, one man that certainly doesn't have any problems with, with digging and keeping digging deep is, <laughs> is your compatriot, Novak Djokovic. His, his return, we, we, you talked about it. You, you said you predicted it. Um, but I mean, it is quite astounding, isn't it? Really? The last, the last year, given given where he was and and actually uh, we 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 featured an interview conducted by a colleague of of ours Simon Briggs on the Telegraph where Novak described his own sort of mental lows and and how he he wanted to be on the court but when he was there there was just nothing nothing left he hadn't got what he used to have and and he he described a period of burnout um how how has he done this? How has he got back to where he is, and and how and where do you see it going from from here? Because we're we're already talking about somebody who's 
won 15 Grand Slam titles and he's closing in on, on Nadal and Federer. Um, I would like to to just say my personal opinion and I don't know if Novak would, would agree with this. There was a lot of talk, of course, that there is this about why Novak hit the wall at the point when he was playing so incredibly well, basically after winning French Open. Uh, in my personal opinion, and this is because I felt it a little bit, um, people tend to, to, to think, yes, there is a part of mental fatigue. Novak won French Open, something that he was so close to winning so many years in order to complete the four Grand Slams. So winning an achievement like this, obviously there is a phase of mental burnout. You we saw it also with Andy. After wanting to be the world number one for so long and then achieving it, what happened only a few months after? Mental burnout followed with what? With an injury. So the main reason why Novak had this, in my opinion, is people tend to blame like uh, gurus and the way he eats and all this other nonsense and bullshit. Um, I would honestly say that it's the injury part because David when you are injured when you feel pain in your body and you are trying to do something with I can only imagine what what he was going through with achieving basically everything you are completely demotivated and dare I say crazy you don't make the right decisions for your career or your life because this deadly mix of injury and um, uh, mental fatigue with all of the accolades and achievements that he did are something which Novak was going through for a, dare I say, a brief period of time. Let's say eight months. Maybe for me, eight months is brief because I was injured for five years. But eight months is... is uh, it sounds even shorter because he bounced back and came back to world number one basically eight months after. But uh, having that being said, uh, I learned a tremendous deal from Novak. I learned the tennis way of life. I learned from Novak how to go about uh, this tennis life day in and day out. And trust me, this was one of the best lessons that I've learned and one of the lessons that impacted my tennis career the most. The most, Because my leap in 2011 or 12, I don't even know which year was it, from 49 to finishing the year number nine was not because I was practicing from four hours that I was practicing eight hours. It was because I was setting up goals and I changed my way of life outside of the court. And this is the big deal that I learned from Novak. What do you think Novak's goals from here are? And do you, um, do you think he will reach them? I haven't talked about that particular part with him. Obviously, the fan in me wants him to beat... Uh, he will break every single record. Uh, 
the one which is up for debate is the, the Grand Slam titles. If you ask me, will he do it? I believe he will. But he will be, when everything is said and done, the player who's won the most Master Series, the player who has uh, the most weeks in world number one. The main part is the Grand Slams. And this is something which is being debated, you know, even you and me are debating it right now in the GOAT discussion, who is the greatest of all time. Uh, I honestly I honestly don't know, David. I, and I'm not afraid to say something so he doesn't get offended or whatever. I hope his goal is to, to uh, have the most, when everything is said and done, to have the most grandstands. But I don't think in this phase, because he's also 32 years old, He's not looking at it, I need to win five more, six more Grand Slams. I think he's more micromanaging his life in terms of being the best possible Novak on Grand Slams and Master Series. And you can actually see that he admitted it in Indian Wells that because of the some things which he was doing wrong, he wasn't the best possible Novak in Indian Wells. So I feel that even though I imagine that that thought is in the back of his mind, that he's more micromanaging his life together with his family to be the best possible version of himself on big events. Yeah, he he referenced Indian Wells and Miami at the end of Miami, and he said, I've had a lot going on off the court. Um, And we, we took that to be something to do with his role as player council president there's been a big political change at the top of the game we know that chris commode's tenure is not going to be renewed at the end of the year and novak as the head of the the player council was getting asked about that a lot he was involved in the 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 decision making process albeit not the final decision which goes to the board um do you feel that 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 is what he was getting at and uh, I just wonder about your opinion on that subject. I think that I think that was one of the things which affected him. Novak by Novak hates being the villain. Well, you have a few people which enjoy it, but this is not in his nature. This guy is so forgiving, and he's helping so many people in his circles. And all of a sudden, his message was translated in a completely bullshit way that he was the main guy who wanted to change Chris because Chris ruined tennis. It's completely not true. But in the media, he was portrayed, especially when Rafa and Roger said that they don't agree with him. He was portrayed as this guy who is changing Chris and leading the opposition or whatever, which was basically never his real intention. So I believe that this fact, with all the meetings that he was doing, and I tell you, there were some, uh, this affected him. I'll tell you another thing. He's really seriously taking this role as player's president, which is against my advice. This is a very, very difficult role, and there were players in the past who were, uh, and I don't want to name anybody, that were having this position just to be the president, but they were not actually really even 10% invested into everyday issues like Novak is. 
This guy is talking to players at the Australian Open. Why is court 17 a bit faster than the center court or whatever? And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck are you doing? You should be focusing on other things, especially in this stage of your career, rather than doing this. So I felt that he, I, my opinion is that he got a little bit disappointed because he was trying to do so good, so much good for tennis, but at the end was portrayed as this villain who kicked out Chris from the ATP. You say he doesn't like to be portrayed as the villain, and, and actually in matches over because the years... Because he's not. He's yeah, not. I, I, well, I, I was going to say that in matches over the years, particularly when we see him play against Federer, I've seen a couple of those Wimbledon finals and the US Open finals, and because of the way people support Federer sometimes, it, I mean, once or twice I've felt a bit uncomfortable with it because it has been so one way. Um, and you can see on Novak's face what what he's having to deal with do you do you think he takes that hard is that tough for him I, I think it's way different on the tennis court I think on the tennis court there I say he even enjoys it a little bit uh, because he had success at the US Open against Federer but don't forget when Roger was coming up and Agassi and Pete were still playing who was the crowd cheering for? This is absolutely normal, David. When Feather is playing against Sampras at Wimbledon, 80% of the crowd is cheering for Sampras because they know that this may be the last Wimbledon that he was playing. When the older guys are on tour and still playing and competing, it's generally normal that people are cheering more for the older, greater players. And I promise you one thing, once Federer retires and Novak is still playing and he's competing against Dominic Thiem or, or Sasha Zverev or, who, or Shapovalov or uh, whoever is coming up, the crowd will generally cheer more for Novak. This is just the way how it goes. That's very interesting. Yes, I can see your point there. Um, and, and actually... I've covered Novak Djokovic's career since the start, having worked in tennis for a long time. I've interviewed him a few times. I don't feel like I know him very well. I, and, I'm, and I wonder whether any of us in the media, and I, and I, I don't know how many of his fans feel like they, they know him. You obviously do know him. What, what is he like? He's an incredible character. Uh, I feel a lot, a lot of the times that he's, and I'm not really saying David about me because we have a, a good relationship, that he's too nice to people, that he's trying to help too many people, which is sometimes, and as stupid as this sounds, is maybe affecting his tennis career. You can see with... You can see that with his tennis of life, with the way that he lived his life outside of the court with his charitable foundation and the tremendous amount of people that he's helping. Second, it's insane how unmaterialistic this guy actually is. It's maybe a stretch to say that he doesn't care about money, but I think he, he's 
really, really different when it comes to most people to, 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 to this point. But um, in the media, obviously, he's always saying the right thing, as he should. But the main part is that he actually really feels this way. And sometimes I feel really like rage when the media, and don't get this the wrong way, mainly British media is twisting his words because he said something that is against this guy or that guy, which is absolutely not true. So my experience with Novak is that he's a really, really interesting character with uh, a tremendous heart and uh, helping, in my opinion, even sometimes too many people uh, around him. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. One of the things that uh, that you've spoken on over the last couple of months, Yanko, are the changes to the lower reaches of the tour. Um, the ITF World Tour uh, came in and it was heavily criticised. You were one of those that criticised the changes and they have subsequently made some some revisions to those to the rules that they have and they've talked about increasing the, the qualifying 
rounds in the ITF World Tour. I, I just wonder whether you feel what else needs to be done. Um, you know, David, this year I was – the main point in why the ITF is changing this is, as you probably know, is gambling. So this is when you start talking why these changes are happening. They tend to say that uh, there's a, on, a, on a lower level, uh, let's say futures or whatever, there's a tremendous amount of gambling going on. This year I was following most of the Australian Open from back home because I had an early round, first round exit to Grigor Dimitrov, so I came back. And I was following deeply most of the matches at home on Eurosport. You know what was the main sponsor? Bet at home. Which, it's like, it's an ITF event and they're changing all these rules because of one of the main issues is betting, but the main sponsor, on TV at least, was bet at home. So, these, the, these changes are I don't know a single sport which is trying to reduce the amount of its competitors. I think we should be proud and happy for having, you know, tennis is the third most popular sport in the world, right? After football and basketball, by the amount of people which are playing. And instead of trying to increase the amount of players which are playing, we are trying to decrease it. And if you decrease the amount of players, you're automatically decreasing the amount of coaches, the amount of physiotherapists, the amount of fitness coaches, which means that you're essentially blocking the sport to organically grow. Second part, and I said it in the video, which I posted, I believe, honestly, in simplicity, not just in tennis, but in life. Player, tennis as a sport is very complex. Who is it a 500? Is he defending points from last year? Is he not? How many points for the win? This and that. Imagine now with two different rankings. How difficult would... I still don't exactly know how this, would, how this works. The last part which they changed is reducing the qualities. Reducing the amount of players who can actually compete. I see this firsthand in terms of players in, in, in tennis clubs and tennis academies. They cannot compete. They end up going to a tournament, they cannot get in, and then they just fly back home. The changes that, that they did, they should be focusing more on how to get players on a lower ranking paid. And this was something that I was advocating to and preaching about even when I was top 10. When I was two years top 10, I was the most vocal member within the top 10 saying that the Grand Slams and the ITF and even the ATP needs to push more money, not towards the winners or semifinalists or whatever. They need to push it towards the lower, lower guys, lower ranked players. Because at the end of the day, they're not going to take that money and buy a Porsche. They're going to take that money and buy, buy, pay a coach, pay a fitness coach, pay something to increase their level. 
And the ITF, I think it's easier for them. Okay, the lower guys are not earning any money anyway, so let's just eliminate them so we don't get shit anymore how lower players are not getting paid. They just don't play. I think it's a very dysfunctional organization, and I think it's a shame how it's being run. Well, certainly some some revisions have been made and so, and some discussions over next steps to address some of the further concerns you, you've referenced in your video and, and here appear to be ongoing as well. So hopefully there will be some improvements there. You, and one, one thing that has happened over the last five or six years is that prize money, certainly for first round defeated players at Grand Slams, has risen considerably. Um, players are now taking £30,000 home from Wimbledon, for instance, if they get into the main draw, regardless of whether they win a main draw match or not. So it would appear during the five years that you've been away or unable to play as much as you want to because of your injuries, things have improved at that level. Do you, Aside from the way your, your irritation at the way Novak has been portrayed, do you feel that, that it is the right decision? to be moving Chris along or not? I think, uh, and sorry to, sorry to say, David, but I completely disagree with you. Things haven't changed one bit. And you want to know why? The reason why is that the percentage, first of all, there is a common misconception which is being portrayed by the media. And I don't think that you're doing this willingly. I just think that you're going about it the wrong way. Somebody who loses first round in the it's portrayed by the media. There, there are two different narratives. Number one, Novak Djokovic wins Australian Open and gets I don't know three million, whatever, three million dollars. And then people who read this in the media, in the newspapers, online, whatever, they say, "Oh my God, Novak won X amount of money for two weeks of playing tennis." And then there's the follow-up sentence. These tennis players earn so much. And then there's the second part of portraying, wow, you lost in the first round and you get to take home 30,000 pounds, which is not the right message, David. But, this, it, is, but it is a fact, Yanka. It, 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 it's not. This is why am I saying this? It's not portrayed in the right way. Same like as the first message when a Grand Slam winner wins three millions, the common misconception is that these tennis players earn a lot. People don't go about it the right way because he didn't get 30,000 pounds for losing the first round. He got 30,000 pounds for being 60 in the world. Yep, no, I fully accept that. In the third most popular sport in the world. He should be taking, and why Why nothing has absolutely changed, and it's an incredible shame. The percentages that the players are getting from Grand Slams are exactly the same like 10 years ago. Maybe it changed for 1% or 2%. If you take all things in, in, in consideration, the inflation, the recession, and everything else, it's still 12%, David. It's still 12% of the total income of, of the gross revenue income of the Grand Slam. And it's been like this for numerous years. 
And when I say to the people, and now it's very, like, it's hard if I talk about money because people think I'm pretentious. He, he should be taking home 120,000 pounds for losing in the first round. You want to know why? Because he probably pays 150 to a coach per year. My point is nothing has actually changed. And I don't blame Chris entirely for this. It's not only his fault. But the problem is that the players, I blame the players the most. We don't go about it the right way. And what, what would insane. be the right way? And what? it's insane, David, that in this era of Novak Djokovic, Serena Williams, Rafael Nadal, Brian Brothers, and Roger Federer, five, six biggest names in the history of tennis, that nothing is actually changed. You well, want to know how much the salaries changed? When Michael Jordan was playing, now when LeBron is playing, when Tiger Woods was playing, when Michael Schumacher was driving, the percentages changed dramatically. You remember the NBA lockdown a few years ago, seven, eight years ago, when they refused to play half a season? I do. You want to know why? They were disagreeing between 49 and 51%. Basketball-related income. So are you are you saying what what are you saying you feel does need to be done then do you feel that because i mean the the one of the the issues of the ATB tour we've discussed a lot on the tennis podcast here is that somebody in Chris Commode's role is running a combination between players and tournaments are you saying that that should be dismantled when i'm saying this Whatever, wherever, if this is Chris or any other person, please don't feel this that I'm attacking the CEO of the ATP because this, and he stressed this point out in the Melbourne players meeting, this is an impossible position because he's in the middle of tournaments and players. So this is not a knock or hit on Chris or anybody in that position. I'm just talking about the narrative which the prize money is being portrayed. If I tell you, David, I and I know you, and I know deeply inside that you agree with me, especially because you're in tennis for most of your life. If I tell you I lose in the first round of Wimbledon and I get thirty thousand pounds, you would say, "Wow, that's impressive." But what if I would tell you I am ranked number fifty in the world and I got that amount of money? you would say, well, that's not really impressive. And what if I would tell you that from the total revenue, men and women together, double, singles, mix, everything together, we are getting 12% from the total revenue. What would you say? Is this fair or is this not fair? You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. That's okay. My point is that it's being portrayed in a completely wrong way. And I don't blame don't blame Chris entirely, but I blame the players. I blame this dysfunctional group, which is, I don't know, called the ATP Council or whatever. We're just not united and managing agencies and Grand Slams and, and Wimbledons and Australian Opens of the world are just laughing in our face. 
Do you do you need a union, a, a, a separate union that isn't how it is now? We need somebody, and I'm maybe going really deep into this, we need somebody who knows how to play poker. We need somebody who has balls to show us the right way. We need players to really realize, to really, really realize that there is a possibility to move French Open to Rome, to move Me uh, Melbourne to Beijing. But players don't believe that this is possible. Players don't believe that they deserve whatever, $200,000 for losing the first round of a Grand Slam because they are ranked top 50 in the third most popular sport in the world. Now, I know that this may tick off some of your listeners because I'm talking about outrageous amounts of money. But, you know, it's, it's okay if a soccer player or an NBA player or a golf player earns that much. But when tennis players are talking about this money, then there is like, oh, my God, this is insane. So we need somebody to show us the right way and mm. believe that Wimbledon can actually be moved to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> you, you want no, Wimbledon to be moved to Abu Dhabi? I don't. This is the point. But the, nobody believes that this can actually happen, David. Well, that couldn't I'll happen, you, I, could it? It could. Yes, it could. This is the... One of my favorite philosophers is Friedrich Nietzsche. And his theory of Uh, talking about life and philosophy is the nihilistic approach. The nihilistic approach is if we take everything which we think has some value and rub it down and put it to ground zero. And then we start talking about this. I tell you one thing, David. If the French Open is to be moved to Rome, it, which is actually kind of funny. You didn't laugh when I said that We could move French Open to Rome or Australian Open to Beijing, but you laughed when I said about Wimbledon. Yeah, I mean, I was and, uh, I was open mouthed though. You can't see me right now, Yanko, but I I, I think I get, understand what you're getting at. What you're saying is you shouldn't you should be prepared to look at it as a blank canvas that could be yes. started again. Because we're not talking. I'm not even talking, David, about money. I'm talking about percentages and i promise you one thing sorry i cannot promise you one thing but i imagine one thing would happen if there is a situation and i took abu dhabi as a very i took abu dhabi on purpose as a very ridiculous location it's a ridiculous location to move wimbledon to i didn't say manchester or new york or whatever and the reason for this is if there is a slight chance that this actually happens This doesn't go to the LTA. This doesn't go to the, whatever, Prime Minister of Great Britain. This goes to the fucking Queen of England. This information that there is, there is a tangible point that Wimbledon might be moved. And then she would probably ask, the Queen, the lovely Queen of England would probably ask, but why do players want to move? And then somebody would have to say, because they feel underpaid. Well, why don't why do they feel underpaid? Because we're giving them only 12%. And then the Queen of England would ask, so why don't you give them more? 
and, and it's actually that simple. It's actually that simple. Well, it's fascinating. You can, you can go about it the same way. The Australian Open is called the Grand Slam of Asia Pacific. Am I right? Correct. Where Where is there a rule that it has to be in Melbourne? Imagine me picking up a phone and calling a fat Chinese billionaire and telling him, Mr. Fat Chinese Billionaire, you have five, you have five years to create TV deals, infrastructure, get all the sponsorship, organize all the TV rights and everything. The only thing we want is a fair share of the money that the sport generates. I don't know what's the fair share. Is it 25? Is it 50? Is it whatever percent? What the fuck do you think he would say? What would he say? Oh, by the way, you. By the way, you're gonna earn probably eighty to hundred million every year. What do you think he would say? But it's a general misconception that these tennis players are earning a tremendous amount, which is actually not true. I have a couple more questions for you, Yanko. I went about it too deep. I'm sorry. Maybe I, I'm going to tick off some people the wrong way, but this is, you can probably see it by the color of my voice that I'm really, I'm really strongly feeling about this. Well, at least we're getting uh, true, true <laughs> feelings on the subject, which, and, and an explanation as to why, which, which I think is key because otherwise we're just, we're guessing. We're, we're, as you say, if that's one of the reasons we have a podcast is so you can say how you want to say it. Um, one thing you also said in September of 2012, you tweeted, I really wouldn't care at all if girls earn the same as guys if the same amount of effort is applied. Hashtag best of five sets. Have you changed your views on that at all in terms of your, your views towards equal prize money? I have no... I mean, I think there's this misconception that few people think that I'm anti, you know, and I have this chauvinistic approach, anti-women, they shouldn't earn as much as guys, which is completely not true. My wife has a company of 23 employees. I'm pushing her to work and earn funds for our family. But there is this point which not just towards me, but towards other people. First of all, I am very well aware that men in tennis still earn more than women. This is a fundamental fact. So I want all of your listeners to understand that female tennis players don't earn as much as male tennis players on the grand scheme of things, on a whatever, on a pie, how you call this, the the, <laughs> the projectile pie of you know income. But this is because men are generating more income. You can have why is it unfair that we talk about this in tennis? But if you would say, imagine a female Chelsea football club earning the same as as the guys are. You would probably laugh in my face, right? I don't think I would, no. You would not? You think they should earn the same even if they're... I'm not talking about quality. I'm talking about the gener generating income. This is what we cannot control. We cannot control who and what is generating income. And this is coming back to my previous point about prize money. It's not about money. It's about percentage. And I know that nobody could care less about Janko Tipsarovic. The generation of the generating income is mainly coming from the stars, from Serena, from Roger and Rafa and Novak and whatever. 
But if there is a case of we're getting equal price money, which I'm completely fine with, what is the case that female tennis players are playing best of three and male tennis players are playing best of five? What is the case? Is the case, because I heard a few times, yeah, nobody would watch that. That's extremely boring. But would you agree that it's not the same amount of effort put in? Would you agree if there was a female sprinter, they're not running 80 meters, they're running 100. If there is a female soccer, sorry, football game, they don't play 60 minutes because nobody wants to watch 90 minutes. They actually play 90. Would you be happy, therefore, if women played best of five sets the same format as men at the slams? If they are getting the same amount of prize money, yes, why not? Or reduce the, the men playing best of three. But if we're talking about equality, and I'm all for one, not 100, 1,000% about equality, then do you agree with me that this is not equality? If guys play best of five and girls play best of three, I certainly, is this equality? I certainly think it is an argument that, that has and can be used to, or certainly has been used as to why equal prize money is problematic. Um, and certainly I personally have said a number of times on this show that I believe there is an argument for playing best of three sets for the first four rounds of slams and best of five over the last three for both genders. Um, I would also say though Yanko in terms of the ability to earn and generate revenue part of that is just structural inequality in as much as how can women earn as much if they don't get as much time on the main show courts or if they don't get as much limelight on the tv etc cetera, etc cetera. there's a there is a structural inequality to society as 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 things stand so, okay. In terms of in terms of show courts, so I, I don't want to. I don't mean to cut you off, but the amount of men's matches on grand, we're talking about Grand Slams only. The amount of men's matches is completely equal to women's matches on show courts. I don't think but that's the true. Problem, I think it's true. I think it's every single time there is. It may change in the last few years because the WTA is missing stars. But I promise you, in the age of Justin Enan and Kim Clijsters and Maria Sharapova and all this, it was one male, one female. One male, one female match on show courts. It might have shifted a bit because of the big three in tennis and obviously when Andy was playing well, because we are all talking about this revenue on the back of stars. You would agree with me that for showtime matches, night session matches, there's never been a double female match or a double male match. It's always one men's, one women's match. And I can guarantee that. Now, the other point is, okay, they get less time because the rules are that they play actually less. They don't play best of five, they play best of three. Yeah, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Well, it's fascinating, Yanka. I, I have I have one more question for you. Sure, go ahead. We touched on how you were, I guess, the next gen of your time back 10, 12 years ago uh, coming through. And we, we talk a lot about 
the next gen players of the current time. You mentioned Alexander Zverev and and there's uh, Denis Shapovalov and Stefanos Tsitsipas. Of all the young players that you've seen, who do you think is going to be the the biggest challenger to to Novak once Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal have, have retired? Uh, obviously, the first name which broke through, which doesn't necessarily mean anything that he will be the guy who will dominate men's tennis, is Sasha Zverev, because he matured way more early than others. He has proven and shown his quality way before others. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, which it can be true, that he will dominate men's uh, tennis after the, the big three are gone. To be honest with you, David, and I hate saying this, I don't know. I don't... Uh, I still have to see these guys actually challenge the top players on big stages. And I think you would agree with me that Australian Open was a proof of that. Yeah, Rafael Nadal played against three next-gen stars in Deminaur, Tsitsipas and Tiafo and gave them, I think, 10 games altogether. Yeah, since all, it passed all three got the win them. against Federer, but but you're right, it was yeah. a, a different story against Nadal. Yeah, I, uh, I I I honestly don't know the the the, the one guy who the, the the two guys that I really see who are very much invested one hundred percent in the tennis way of life is uh, Tsitsipas and uh, Felix, the young kid from Canada. Uh, who is breaking through really nicely. Yeah, Ogier Aliassim, correct. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I don't know. Maybe Denis Shapovalov breaks through in a year. Maybe, I don't know, Kyrgios be- decides to, okay, enough bullshitting, I want to be world number one. Maybe, I don't know, Dominic Team elevates his game and starts playing better on hardcore. I, I don't know. So I need to see a little bit more in these guys consistently challenged. If you're asking me who's going to win Grand Slams, I can tell you right now. All of these guys will win a Grand Slam. But if you're asking me who's going to dominate men's tennis once the big three is retired, I honestly don't know. Hmm. And I guess that's one of the reasons that those three that have are so exceptional because they're all good, they're all brilliant tennis players, but those three have just got got it between the ears as well. I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, exactly as you said now, the, uh, the warrior's deadliest weapon is his mind. And I'm a firm believer in that. And I feel that in this age of, Constant, let's call it constant distractions in Facebooks and Instagrams and YouTubes. There's a lot of other things, which is great. You know, we have much more opportunities in life now than we had 10 or 15 years ago. But it's way more distra- distracting for a young mind. So young players need to be more, need to be tougher than ever. 
in terms of getting their mind right and straight, what do they actually want to do and want to achieve? It's way more challenging for them than it was for me or other players growing up 15 years ago. And that's one of the things you concentrate on in your Mastermind course, which is, I think, a four-week course, isn't it, in, in the end of it April? Is. And it is. It, just, just quickly on that, I mean, if anybody wants to find out more about it, go to succeedwithyanko.com and you can read all about what, what Yanko has got planned and, and anybody can sign up to this to a certain number of people. Um, yeah, we're trying to keep the amount of people limited just for to be like a special group. Um, so far, we're having a lot of success with the amount of people which are uh, entering. Um Exactly as we spoke about, this is not about the succeed of Janko talking purely about forehands and backhands. These are some of the things that, and like what I told you now about the ATP and the prize money is just one of the small, it's like a teaser of how am I going to go about this whole thing. We're going to talk, let's say one of the things that I'm really deeply invested in is the influence of modern society and social media on a young player's mind. The second part is decision-making, when to go pro, when to decide to go to college, and when to decide to go from college to try and play pro again. So there will be a tremendous amount of very interesting topics that don't evolve purely about forehands and backhand, which we will talk about, don't worry. But we will talk about the tennis way of life and the way that it's imp affecting your general well-being and general way of success in life. And do you have one view of that? I mean, do you think players should not have social media accounts? I know you, you have them, but you're in your 30s. I mean, do you think players would be better off having no Twitter, no Instagram? No, I don't. I uh, I believe that you should get with the times. But listen, the, the correct answer is yes, you should have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and whatever, Snapchat and YouTube, but you should moderate the amount of time that you're on it. But we all know that it's very hard because I think teams of experts were dealing and making these social media platforms that it's insanely addictive. The second part is it's way easier to get fame and recognition now through social media than it was before. But in a way, that's a good thing. The main part of getting and not being affected by social media and in this modern age, in the mindset of a young player, believe it or not, David, is to have a clear goal. Because if you have a clear goal in life, or in tennis for that matter, you won't be on social media longer than you should. And I see this very often in locker rooms. People that don't have a goal, you see it, you see it in their eyes. People and players which don't have a clear goal towards their willing to, to dig really deep and endlessly fail they tend to do things the wrong way. I was one of these people. One of the, uh, this is for me a very, very clear point because if you have a goal to be the 
world number one or top 10 or whatever you want, you won't spend three hours on Instagram every day. I promise you that. So you need, I'm a big believer in trigger points. If you find the right trigger point, that trigger point will launch a chain of events which will then affect your general well-being. And my point is, you cannot say to a young player, hey, stay, stay off Instagram, because that's impossible, and I'm not, be- I'm not a believer in that. But rather setting up his mind to have a clear-cut goal, what he wants to do and what he's currently doing, which will affect his social the time that he spends on social media or any other uh, habit which is self-destructive if you use it too much. Fascinating. Really is. And I'm sure everybody who's listened to this interview here on the tennis podcast will will just feel that they've really got to got to know you a little bit and and how you feel and, and the the reason you're setting up this program. And well, I, I wish you all the best with it, Yanko. Really do appreciate the time you've given us here on the tennis podcast. Thank you very much for having me, David. I'm very happy that you allowed me to kind of open up, express my, maybe even something that I shouldn't have said, but I really felt passionate about it and I'm happy that you gave me the platform to do it. It's our pleasure. I hope to see you on the circuit, winning matches and uh, and furthering your goals uh, in the future. Thank you very much, David. So that's Janko Tibzaric. We were supposed to be talking for 45 minutes. It ended up being an hour and 20. And personally, I, I loved every minute of it. Uh, he, he surprised me. He shocked me at times. But I was on the edge of my seat talking to him. I hope you feel similarly having listened to him. As you could probably tell, I don't agree with everything he said. I question elements of how realistic it is to be able to, for instance, have a players union that will help the sport operate in a in a way that ends up making all the players better off they might get a bigger slice of the pie they might get a higher percentage but would the sport be overall better off and and earn as much revenue as it has been earning and in terms of its increases over the last six years i personally question that given all the political elements that that one has to consider within the sport but that's only my view. You may have a different view. The The point of having Yanko on this show was to, to allow him to express his views. And I personally found it fascinating to listen to him. We'll be back with more of these types of show in the future if we can. We're, we're trying to get more guests on. If you've enjoyed it, do let people know. Share the interview on social media. Send the links to people. Uh, and hopefully many more people can enjoy these types of show. And we'll be able to do more of them in the future. That's it for now, though. So thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.